Welcome to the Old Testament Reading Podcast. I'm your host, Joel, and today we're focused on Exodus 19 and 20, 24, and then 31 through 33. You can find and subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. All the links I've included in the show notes. And if questions come up during the course of your reading, please feel free to ask them at bit.ly slash capital A-S-K hyphen capital O capital T. Once again, that's bit.ly slash capital A lowercase s-k hyphen capital O capital T. So these chapters from Exodus 19, 20, 24, 31, 32, 33, these all focus on the ratification of the covenant along with the breaking of the covenant. Uh, The questions that I think are being asked are, what sorts of behavior does God expect from the people of Israel? And then, how successful will they be in keeping their end of the covenant? Uh, And then, how will God respond to breaking this covenant? And these are key questions for us as well. We don't live in the time that Moses lived three, 4,000 years ago, but we do experience the same sorts of questions. How does God deal with sin? How will God reply to those who break God's covenant? Speaking frankly, there are a couple of places in this week's reading that just have stumped me for a while as a student of scripture. I will do my best to offer some thoughts, but if you've got thoughts, I'd love to hear them, particularly on chapter 24 and then a couple pieces in chapter 32. So let's get started. Um, with, With chapter 19, we have this beautiful picture of how God has has borne the Israelites to to this mountain on eagles' wings. And uh, there are some Old Testament translators that prefer to use the idea of vultures' wings, which I just don't understand. The majesty of an eagle that soars through the sky really captures uh, the majesty of God. And uh, there's there's some urban legends, I believe, that uh, eagles will kind of push their... They're eaglets out of the, the nest to see if they can fly, and, and if they struggle, then the eagles will swoop down and catch the eaglets and, and help them fly. And there's some idea that that might be what God's doing here. Although some of that is, is not proven, some of it is, is more urban legend. There's some language in chapter 19, this idea that uh, if you'll truly heed God's voice, If you keep God's covenant, you'll become for God a treasure among all the peoples. You can see this language in verse 5 of chapter 19. This is language that uh, is shared in common with some other documents from the ancient Near East, particularly documents that a vassal would uh, covenant to with the Lord. These are called suzerainty treaties. Uh, the, the suzerain would be the, the Lord in this case, and then the, the vassal would be the one that the Lord oversees and, and provides for and is sovereign over. And so in some sense, what's going on here is that God is asserting primacy over the Israelites, but also promising to provide for them. And while we may uh, sort of... Uh, not dislike some of this language based on the history of um, imperialism that we've seen in our world. Uh, God is someone who we can trust to be a good Lord and someone who who really offers an, an image of what it looks like to be a good Lord and is is the perfect suzerain. Uh, so uh, there's there's some sense that it makes for God to provide the suzerainty language. There's also quite a bit of boundary setting. 
in chapter 19, where God is very clear, don't touch the mountain. Don't come close to the mountain. Make sure that you've ritually cleansed yourself. We're going to do all of these different things so that you know how important some of these commands are so that you will kind of internalize the gravity with this. And, and God's not doing this because God likes having these sorts of uh, silly rules. Uh, God isn't uh, persnickety for no reason. God's doing this because uh, there's a certain amount of holiness that human beings can tolerate. And if, if, if folks who can't tolerate much holiness touch the mountain, well, they'll be overwhelmed with God's holiness and won't be able to live. So, so there are some boundaries that are set, not so that, uh, you know, again, this is not persnickety on God's part. This is to protect the people um, so that they won't go in places where they will be hurt. God promises to make these people a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, which is language taken up by Peter uh, in, in 1 Peter 2 for the church, that we are to be uh, God's priests in the world. That's one of the reasons that the reformers talk about the priesthood of all believers, that although certain members of the priesthood of all believers will be ordained as pastors or elders or deacons in, in our tradition in the PCUSA, uh, we are all called to be priests, to represent God, to serve as the intercessor between God and, and, and human beings. And we're also called to be a holy nation. This isn't something uh, that America is called to be. This is something Israel is called to be, and, and also the church is called to be. Um, and and if, if we can be citizens of heaven first and foremost, we can be a holy nation in that regard. Following uh, all of these sort of regulations and boundary setting, God offers to Israel the Ten Commandments. And uh, these are commandments that you're likely familiar with. Uh, you may not know the order, but uh, I've linked a YouTube video that I made below uh, in the show notes uh, as a way of remembering the order. And, and shout out to, and I don't remember which Sunday school teacher taught this to me, uh, but it was one of my Sunday school teachers, I think I was in third grade uh, when they taught this to me, and I've remembered it ever since. So um, hat tip to all the Sunday school teachers out there. Thank you for what you do. I'm not going to give you the commandments as they are typically given. I want to give you a sort of a more interpretive version of these commandments. The first commandment uh, involves almost an expansion of God's name, is how it starts. Instead of just saying, I am who I am, which is the name that God gave to Moses, God tells the Israelites, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is God's identity, the one who is for you, the Lord your God, who brings you out of slavery, out of, out of the house of bondage, the house of slavery. Uh, and, and so what this means for us, um, because in Hebrew the term for worship and the term for serve are the same word, uh, avodah, I believe, um, or uh, avod or something like that, uh, we are called to worship and serve God alone, to have no other gods besides God, because God is the one who's brought us out of the house of slavery. 
The second commandment uh, you may be familiar with is no idols. Um, and, and one of the things that I think is, is so interesting about this commandment is how Calvin talks about, John Calvin talks about the human heart as an idol factory. We're constantly producing and manufacturing idols. This talks about the idols of gold and silver, but there are more than just idols that are physical. We make idols all the time. Whenever we uh, treat something else as an ultimate goal in and of itself. Uh, we've made it an idol. Uh, in this commandment, we also see God's covenant love, God's hesed is the Hebrew word, uh, that, that God will be faithful to the end because of God's covenant. We see that compared with God's vengeance and how God's vengeance lasts for two or three generations, but God's covenant love lasts for thousands of generations. The third commandment about taking God's name in vain, uh, what's also in, in play here is whenever we casually or falsely invoke God's name, whenever we are speaking as representatives of God, which we all are because we're a kingdom of priests, whenever we're speaking as a representative of God and we speak falsely, we've taken God's name in vain. Whenever uh, we as representatives of God say that Jesus is a fan of XYZ, you're not a fan of XYZ, when that's not true, we've taken God's name in vain. The fourth commandment of remembering the Sabbath could also be conceived of as remember your liberation. Remember that you are not slaves to anyone else. You worship and serve God alone. Because of that, uh, you are not going to be so consumed with your work or so consumed with making other people proud. Uh, you're not going to be so intent on that that you will work and work and work and work without stopping. No, because you worship and serve God alone, you will render one day of every week that is holy, that is set aside for the Lord. Remember your liberation. This is what the Sabbath is for. Beginning in commandment 5 and then going through the commandment 10, there's a shift to the horizontal instead of the vertical. The first four commandments are all about how to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second six commandments are all about how to love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two greatest commandments uh, in the words of Jesus. So as we shift to the horizontal, uh, we talk about honoring father and mother. And not only that, but, but this commandment has the sense of honoring all those who came before you. Don't throw out the past, so to speak. There were people who were intelligent, thoughtful folks in the past. And, and while there are times we may be tempted to take systems or uh, uh, other, other ways of being, industries, institutions, and just tear them all down, burn them to the ground, called to honor our mother and father. We're called to respect the work that came before us. And yes, there may be a time to burn things down and to remake them from scratch, but we need to be very careful when we think about doing that. There's also this idea of murder versus kill in the sixth commandment. That uh, murder is, is what's in play here, whereas killing is, is something that, uh, that's not what the Hebrew word means, despite the King James Version translation of this as thou shalt not kill. In the seventh commandment, um, thou shalt not commit adultery. Adultery involves more than just physical action, as Jesus points out in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Going to commandment eight, in a similar vein, thievery can be mental and emotional as well as being physical. This is not just telling us to avoid grand theft auto or shoplifting. This is telling us to avoid taking credit for somebody else's idea. 
this this is uh, you know it's it's a more all-encompassing command than just the five-finger discount. Bearing false witness is in the ninth commandment is not precisely equivalent to lying. You may have heard the question uh, as to whether if you were hiding a, a, a Jewish refugee and Nazis came knocking at your door, uh, what would you say to them? How would you honor God's commands? Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a great uh, article about this, which I've linked in the show notes on telling the truth. It's a little bit dense, but it's good. Uh, talking about how there are some people who have a right to know the truth and others who don't. And the command to avoid uh, uh, bearing false witness doesn't include always telling the truth, as it were. And finally, the 10th commandment, uh, when we have uh, thou shalt not covet. Desire isn't inherently wrong. Covetousness is what happens when you allow desire to run your life instead of allowing godly and neighborly love to run your life. That's what's wrong, and that's what we're charged to avoid. In these Ten Commandments, God spells out some basic ways of loving God and of loving neighbor. And these Ten Commandments, while they may not all precisely translate into the New Covenant, I'm thinking particularly of, of honoring the Sabbath day and keeping it holy, many of them do. And I think that they, they offer good guidelines, good, good uh, guardrails for how to care for our fellow human beings. Um, all of them point back to love the Lord your God and serve him alone uh, because that's what we're called to do. So chapters 21 through 23, which we're not reading, are called the Book of the Covenant. We're going to return to these in year three of the Old Testament reading plan, and they're definitely worth reading as they help us understand how Israel's laws, rules, and regulations were structured. But instead of, of looking in depth into that right now, uh, we're going to go to chapter 24, where we have this ratification of the covenant uh, between the elders, Moses, Aaron, and his sons, and God. And let's talk about blood for a minute. Uh, the book of Exodus, to this point, has been particularly bloody. Uh, we began with this idea of the bridegroom of blood back in Exodus 4, where Moses was circumcised, or Moses' son was circumcised, excuse me, and uh, how that blood uh, saved Moses from, from God coming and taking his life. Then we have the Nile being turned to blood as part of God's judgment against Israel. We have the Passover involving blood covering the, the doorframe of the Israelites' houses, which told God to pass over their houses. All of these, and, and, and this ceremony as well, involve blood, and blood is a stand-in for life. Now, this isn't because God is bloodthirsty. Uh, instead, it's because God is intimately acquainted with the rules that govern all of life. Every action has consequences, and even if God can forgive with no strings attached, that's not how God constructed the world to work. Uh, that, that every sin, every wrongdoing has some form of consequence. Uh, again, not because God is somehow bloodthirsty, but because uh, without consequences for sin, without that feedback, uh, we wouldn't experience what sin does to relationships and to our own life. Later uh, in, in the Old Testament, King David will say at the end of 2 Samuel, 
I will not sacrifice to the Lord that which has cost me nothing. It's that idea that's behind excuse me, uh, behind the, uh, the meaning of blood being used to ratify covenants. Uh, by using blood, by sealing the covenant with the life of an animal, it lends the covenant gravitas. It reminds the people how seriously they need to take it. And then uh, after they ratify the covenant, they, they pour blood on, on a bunch of things. The elders and the, the, the Aaron and Nahab, Abihu and, and uh, Moses, along with Joshua, have a meal with God. There's this eating and drinking together where it says that they saw the God of Israel. This is disconcerting to me. How can God do this? Uh, elsewhere, God says, no one can see my face and live. Maybe there was some sort of a transformation of part of the mountain in response to God's particularly focused presence. Uh, maybe there was uh, some representation of God uh, that they saw. Um, uh, maybe they saw God's feet. I, I don't know. This is one of the places in uh, this week's reading that just stumps me. Chapters uh, 25 through 30 uh, discuss the making of the tabernacle and the making of the sacred materials that live inside the tabernacle. And we're, we're skipping those as well to get into the episode of the golden calf and also to deal with Bezalel and Oholiab. Uh, chapters 25 and 30 are good. It's, it's neat to see the intentionality with which God commands that the tabernacle be created. Um, however, uh, just like the Book of the Covenant, we'll come back to that in year three. So in chapter 31, we meet Bezalel and Aholiab, and they tell us uh, by their very existence how important beauty and presentation is to God. Now, it's not the only thing. Let's be clear. God's not just concerned about optics. He's not a bad politician. However, it is one thing. Uh, we all have experienced this, that a slick presentation or, or a nice infographic tends to hold our attention uh, on average more than something that's just kind of sloppily thrown together or that isn't attractive. And, and God is interested not only in having a bunch of symbols that are just sloppily thrown together or, or are unattractive, God is interested in being attractive in every sense, in physical beauty, in emotional and spiritual meaning, uh, in, in, in mental acuity. This also shows us that the second commandment doesn't uh, eliminate artists and craftspeople. However, uh, as, as is made clear in the last part of chapter 31, not even working for the Lord gives these folks an excuse to work on the Sabbath. Taking Sabbath is more important than doing God's work. And, and this is true for all of us. We need to remember our liberation, that we don't worship and serve our employers or, or anyone else who demands our time, um, that, that even doing God's work comes second to remembering God's liberation. So Moses is up on the mountain, 40 days, 40 nights, and in chapter 32, we see that the Israelites have lost patience. Despite all they've seen, despite what they've borne witness to, they give up hope in God and in Moses, God's servant. They, they feel abandoned, and they seek another leader. They find this leader in the person of Aaron. 
Moses' older brother, someone who can lead them the rest of the way because Moses has been gone for 40 days. We got to move on. And Aaron's leadership proves to be deeply disappointing. He takes on a policy of appeasement, perhaps you'd call it. He allows the Israelites to bully him into making an idol instead of insisting that they follow the commands of God. And, you know, he's, he tries to be pious about it. He, he tries to redirect the people to celebrate this festival to, to Yahweh, to the Lord, while calling the golden calves that he created the Lord, uh, which completely runs counter to the commands of God, which the Israelites received not two months before. I think all of this points to a deep need in the human psyche to serve and to worship someone or something. As Bob Dylan says, you're going to have to serve somebody. I want you to note also what it is they used to make the golden calves. It was the gold that they plundered from the people of Egypt. How frequently do we take God's good gifts and create idols out of them? Whether that's the gift of a job or, or of money or of food, or, or, or sex, or, or, or of having a family. So many of God's gifts, we tend to elevate to the highest position, to highest priority. And when we elevate something besides God to the highest position in our lives, we've made it into an idol. But this doesn't stop God from giving us good things. God knows that we're going to worship and serve them rather than the one who gave them to us. And, and yet, God loves us so deeply and tenderly that God wants to see us have good things. God also wants to see us worship and serve God alone. And in this act of worshiping the golden calves, the people have broken their covenant with God. And Moses acts this out vividly in his smashing of the two tablets of the law. And then he takes the golden calves that Israel had made and uh, grounds them down into powder, puts it in the water, and makes the Israelites drink it. Uh, later in the law, in the book of Numbers, there's a test for adultery that involves drinking consecrated water. And if adultery had occurred, the water would allegedly reveal it. You can find this in Numbers 5, um, and there's some questionable stuff in Numbers 5 that's misogynistic in nature. It fits the culture, but it doesn't fit where we are um, in, in our relationship with God and in our culture. Um, so take that with a grain of salt. Um, but what's important about this parallel is that here, as elsewhere in the Old Testament, Israel's rebellion against God's laws is likened unto a sort of adultery. Instead of keeping their covenant with the Lord Yahweh, the people of Israel pursued other gods, golden calves. This is an adulterous impulse to wander from one's commitments and one's oaths. To take one's covenant lightly is another way of talking about adultery. The other piece that gives me pause in this week's reading is the slaughter of 3,000 people by the Levites in response to Moses' command. This is suddenly and horrifically violent. On the one hand, if all of Israel had actually listened to Moses' voice in verses 26 and 27, no one would have needed to die. On the other hand, such a slaughter is troubling. 
It's troubling as we serve this same God and this God who desired to rule over the people of Israel with love and justice seems to smile on such a slaughter. Perhaps this is a directed slaughter uh, focused simply on the ringleaders, the chief ringleaders of the golden calf celebration. Perhaps that's why it was only 3,000 people. Some interpreters look at this story and use it as a reminder that we need to oppose sin in the midst of the holy community by any means necessary. This is true. However, I'm not sure if this is the full moral of the story. I confess myself disturbed, and whenever I reread this chapter, I don't find a whole lot of clarity. If there are things that you see in this slaughter that would help me, I'd appreciate that. However, following the slaughter, we see this beautiful back and forth that Moses and God have, with Moses pleading with God to bear with the sinfulness of the people. It's this back and forth, I think, that makes Moses such a phenomenal leader. There are some leaders um, that, that will only take the orders of their superiors and inform their direct reports of those orders and ensure that the direct reports follow through on the orders of their superiors. These leaders are okay. What Moses does is he takes the concerns and the problems of his people and brings them to God instead of just advocating on God's behalf with the people. He advocates on the people's behalf with God. Moses, in fact, is willing to die, willing to be cast out from God's mercy for the people that he leads. Even in the portion of chapter 33 about the tent of meeting, uh, even in that, Moses is spoken of as an exceptional human being, an exceptional leader. God is speaking face to face with him as one would a friend. And God doesn't speak face to face with anybody. Even later on in this passage, Moses, uh, God will tell Moses, no one can see my face and live. So when Moses verbally spars with God on the mountain, reminding God about how the Egyptians would profane the name of the Lord if God took the Israelites up to Mount Sinai and then killed them, uh, reminding God about God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob, who's called Israel, uh, reminding God about how God has adopted this nation as God's own people. When Moses does all this, that conversation between Moses and God is nothing new that Moses had been interceding on the people's behalf with God long before this situation. These are roads that I'm certain have been traveled by both Moses and God before. And this is an important point. We need to speak with God regularly so that when something comes up where we need for God to hear us, we already have evidence that God does. One other thing to note is that Joshua uh, begins to play a key role in these stories. Joshua will be uh, the next leader of the Israelite people after Moses dies. And uh, Joshua went up to the mountain with Moses, uh, went partway up the mountain toward God. And Joshua hangs out by the tent of meeting after Moses gets out. Joshua deeply desires this relationship that Moses has with God. So after this conversation, uh, what we'll get into next week is Moses seeing God's glory. 
Not directly, mind you, because no one can see God face to face and live, but Moses sees God's glory slant in the words of, I think, the poet Emily Dickinson. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant, is what she says. Moses sees where God just was, in some sense. Moses sees what has changed because the Lord was there. And we'll get into that a little bit next week. That's all for Exodus 19, 20, 24, and then 31 through 33. Um, We're going to keep jumping all over next week. We'll read Exodus 34 and 40, and then we'll be done with the book of Exodus. From there, we'll pick up the book of Leviticus, not in chapter 1, but in chapter 8. We'll read 8, 9, and 10, and then we'll read Leviticus 16. We're jumping all over, so pay attention to the reading plan. We will revisit these chapters we're jumping over later in our reading. But for now, we're following the story of how God's people traveled through the wilderness. Uh, I hope you'll be able to follow this story of God's people, even without some of the rules and regulations they received along the way. And may God bless you in your reading of Scripture.